You see what happens when you say, let the little children come to me? They go. And I'd like to draw your attention to a coming attraction, if you will, from the pulpit. Next Sunday, we're going to begin a new uh, five-week series I'm excited about. It's called Following Heaven's Words in a Hellbound World. If it sounds like uh, we're getting into some serious uh, territory there, we might be. We'll be looking at some controversial topics, approaching them from a uh, perspective of, of this book, collection of books. We're going to be talking about belief. What does it mean to believe? What does the Bible say about belief and other faiths and uh, Christian stewardship? What's that look like? What, what does the Bible really say about that as it comes to what God gives, gives us? Uh, what do we talk about some life issues uh, that, are, that are pertinent about uh, being for life? And what does that mean? What does that look like today when different people claim to be for life? Uh, alternate lifestyles. This is a term we hear. Uh, what do these terms mean, and what does the Bible have to say about these issues? So, uh, real issues, and we need to get beyond what culture is saying about them. So, please make plans to join us. Should be an interesting time as we jump into our summer together. We're glad you're here today. Now, I'm not saying this morning's message may be any less of a challenge. We're going to talk about conflict this morning. Conflict. There's a tale told of a young boy at the dinner table with his family. Young boy got up the courage to, uh, if maybe missing the tact, to ask his mom the question, are bugs good to eat? <laughs> are what? His mother responded, caught off guard by the question, of course, as you would be. Are bugs good to eat, the boy asked. Let's not talk about such things at the dinner table, son, his mother replied, hoping to, you know, table that question indefinitely. After dinner, dinner the, the mother inquired, now, baby, what did you want to ask me earlier? Oh, nothing, the boy said. There was a bug in your soup bowl, but it's long gone now. It's not easy to be a child avoiding conflict at home sometimes. Sometimes it finds you, right? You're, you're, you're inquisitive, and conflict just finds you. But do you remember the last time conflict found you, no matter the age you are? Uh, let's say the last uh, fight you got into with somebody, anybody, I don't care who. Let me ask another question now that I've asked that one. Regardless of the person whom you were fighting, where were you siding? Were you siding with the world or with the Lord? That's the question for this morning as we uh, discuss this topic of conflict. Whose side were you on? If you're looking at that screen behind me and you're thinking, James, Book of James, why didn't we stay home today? Well, I feel the same way. Do you think James, who you know, grew up with Jesus, do you think he ever struggled with being on the side of the Lord? And yet we look at the text that he's known for. I know how we all want to answer this question. First thing that we'd like to say to whose side are we on anyway has nothing to do with Drew Carey, by the way. We all want to give the answer. I'm on the Lord's side, of course. Uh, couldn't you tell? You, you, you've seen my, maybe my Facebook page or, or my bumper sticker, maybe the decals I have up around the house. Uh, my wife and I have a couple of these scriptural wall decals, Joshua 24, 15. We put those up on the wall to say this is a, this is a Christian house, my house. 
I don't know about all them other houses, but this house is a Christian house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Just don't pay attention to what's going on under the decal. Are we in the church sometimes the greatest saying we believe in the peace that passes all understanding and then we get cut off on the freeway? <laughs> or someone else gets our promotion or embarrasses us in public or uh, who knows, you know, eats the last, eats our lunch at work. Without missing a beat, we turn around and say, oh, it is on. I got the peace right here. Do we ever side not with the Lord but with the world. Have you ever known any Christian marriages, for example, in which one person of the couple would tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the way their money's going to get spent, the way their time is going to be used, the way their kids are going to be raised? These decisions are their decisions, regardless of what anybody else, including the spouse, may think. They might not ever say it, but you can see it. And this comes down to which restaurant the family's even having for lunch. You know we have it rough when we have a little discussion about lunchtime. You know things are bad. This person may pretend the spouse gets some say in, in this situation, but everyone else knows it's their way or the highway, right? A person that's not too concerned with which side God is on. It's all about them. We see this. Selfishness can run rampant in the church. We're guilty of it. You know, if only the wife would start worrying about what I desire from her when I get home from work. I've been working all day. Yeah, me. If only my family, if only my church would start giving me a little bit more attention when I walk in on Sunday morning. If only those people at work would start recognizing my greatness. If only my kids would be like this. If only my church leaders would be like that. Not necessarily like this, but like my way. You know, when trouble arrives in our lives or, or we get the short end of, of the stick in our relationships, maybe it's not the wisest to get the nearest broom and the largest rug and sweep those issues up as fast as we'll avoid confrontation. I'm good at that sometimes. There's nothing saintly about avoiding conflict. But whose side do we take? Do we take sides with the world on an overwhelming basis? Do we choose the self instead of sacrificing the self? That's what we want to talk about this morning. Relational molehills might end up the biggest mountain this side of Everest. I found multiple uh, publications with a similar headline. Uh, from June 2014, and this was a good month for this. Maybe this will ring some bells for you. They were all similar to this in wording. Woman divorces husband because he doesn't like Frozen. Let me read that again. <laughs> Woman divorces husband because he doesn't like Frozen. Now, I know this is 2014, but we're talking about Walt Disney. There was a billion-dollar movie hit here of about five years ago, and it prompted one couple to literally let it go, badumtis. Following the man's, quote, icy response of the movie, the woman moved back in with her parents, claiming her six-year marriage was over. Somewhere on planet Earth, this happened. He just doesn't understand me. 
Can you imagine being the attorney hired to collect on this? Now we laugh. It's the stuff of tabloids, but to an eternal God, my friends, how many of our battles look this ridiculous? Look this ridiculous. So our text today will go beyond where I'm coming from, my side of the argument, going beyond circumstances, going beyond my feelings, going beyond Walt Disney. As James does, it's going to cut right to the heart of the matter. Where does conflict come from? What does our Bible tell us? Well, turn with me to the fourth chapter of James. We're going to go through the first ten verses here, but let's just go through the uh, beginning three immediately. I want you to keep in mind, too, as we talk through this text today, that James is talking to us, not the outside world, not, not the people that make us mad that uh, we, we don't see in the church, us. James writes this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Let's stop there. So the Bible says, Bible tells me, the problem in my marriage, my household, my workplace, my church building, is not that someone isn't seeing things my way, that they're not taking my side. When conflict comes, we may jump to this, we may think this way, but the problem isn't really about somebody else at all. The problem isn't that I'm not getting along with my wife, kids, boss, coworkers, etc. The problem is that I'm not getting along with God. That's, that's, where, that's what we want to understand today. The problem is that I'm not getting along with God. The problem is that I'm fighting Him. Ultimately, I'm not taking God's side. I'm not taking God's side. So when I turn my household or I turn my church into, into a battlefield or, or a bit of a soapbox for my own preferences and opinions, instead of God's tool for peace and compromise and unity, it's a sign that I've got these boxing gloves on, but it isn't really uh, one another. It isn't really friends and family I'm trying to take down in the ring. It's God. It's God Almighty. That's what, this, that's what this says. God has his will for my life in each of these. But I'm like that individual who has already made up his mind about the marriage or whatever. I, I don't really want God involved in this part of my life right now. I just want to have my way about the situation. But James goes on to tell us that when this is where I'm coming from, when it's all about me, when it's all about the world within me, I'll never be satisfied. I'll never be satisfied. When it's about my passions, I'm going to go to any means. My relationships are going to suffer. I'm going to stretch a few of them to their breaking points. How far can I even go with this, with selfishness? Look at verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. And it doesn't take a, a, you know, a, a degree in, in sociology or anthropology or, or other smartologies. Political science to know this is true. Can we put a number on a, on a death tally worldwide since the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis? Probably an awful lot of zeros there. An act that was committed between two brothers when one desired and didn't have what the other did. James specifically mentions murder in verse 2 because murder, uh, one author writes, is the ultimate end of selfishness. If God gives us life and calls life good, 
The opposite of this is taking life away. You remember when Jesus refers to the devil as a murderer from the beginning? We actually talked about this text last week in John 8, 44. A murderer from the beginning. It's the opposite of what God intends for us, is death. Not me. Not me. Not the church. Not God's people. Not us. We wouldn't kill someone to gain the world. Well, David did. David did. And he was considered a man after God's own heart. But you remember his uh, uh, little scandal with Bathsheba on the roof? And Uriah in 2 Samuel? Believers, too, uh, will enter battlefields where we should never stand, ultimately fighting the one, as C.S. Lewis writes, who enables us to fight in the first place. Right? It's possible, very possible. Bible says so. Just think what could happen, though, in our relationships with one another if the Lord was truly the Lord over all of them, not me, over everything in my life. One Christian counselor writes on the topic of uh, conflict in the house between spouses. You will not resolve conflict until you correctly identify the source of the conflict. You. You. If you blame the other person, you've not correctly identified the source. This author continues, as a pastoral counselor, I've never seen a conflict that is 100% one-sided. Never. Even if... uh, One party is only 10% responsible and the other side 90%. The 10% side still needs to face his or her responsibility and let God convict and deal with the other person. The idea is that we deal with our own sin of selfishness and not pass the buck because ultimately there's two sides here, the Lord's and the world's. Do you see where it all starts? We're... uh, continuing the streak that Adam began so long ago in the garden, so long ago. One of my favorite uh, political references, you know, ultimately he was the first Bill Clinton. It was that woman you put here with me, Lord! The Bill Clinton joke's got to go, right? It's 2019, I'm sorry. But we're so good at trying to pass the buck. We're so good at trying to pass the buck to cover our passions. It just seems to come natural. It's somebody else's fault. Somebody else's fault. We don't want to ma- admit that we make a mistake somewhere. From these passions that are at war within us, it's my, spouse, it's my spouse's fault that we don't have a better marriage. Or it's my coworker's fault that, that, that my work environment isn't better. It's my brother's fault that we're not on speaking terms anymore. It's the leadership of the church I attend that keeps me from being more joyful. We say these things, don't we? And each and every time we say these things to defend our passions, the devil has convinced us to stand against the God who made us. So James is saying here, verses 1 to 3, Church, quit worrying about yourself. Quit worrying about you. Quit chasing your own desires to their bitter end. Give up the fight against one another and against your maker and be truly on the only side of the argument that matters. We hear this expression, uh, choose your battles. We need to choose our battles sometimes. I'm not so sure about that expression, choosing our battles. The Bible says we're at war in this life, spiritually. That's not going away. Ephesians 6.12. The devil and his demons seek to destroy us. That's what we're up against. I'm not so sure that in the church our problem is choosing battles. It's that we choose the wrong side of the battle. 
We're standing on the wrong side of things. Verse one, we choose the passions waging war within us to direct our actions instead of God's will for us. How? Personal politics. Not for God's kingdom, but for our own. We do this often. Social media, we, we might claim a, a heavenly allegiance to some earthly bandwagon or some political party over another. I don't see any point in this Bible anywhere that says Jesus himself was a registered voting Democrat or Republican. Sorry, but he wasn't either one. But there are preachers who will, will get on a bandwagon or they'll pick a, a politician, they'll say he's a good man for the good Lord. But there was only ever one good man for God. His name is Jesus, Mark 10, 18. So James cuts to the heart of what we're doing here. Boardroom, voting booth, pulpit, you name it. We can't fool God because he knows where we're standing. We might fool one another. But as God's children, he knows where the fight lies within us. Sometimes we say, well, it just seems like a fight to get what I need, to get what I want in this world. But this is exactly the way it's going to be, and the Bible tells us this in verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask, and then James continues. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Too often, are you ever guilty of this when, when, when we approach God? I don't really want to approach God. That is, I want to say some things to God, but I'm not really sure at that point I really want him to be the all-powerful, all-knowing, soul-self-existent being in the universe God. I mean, for half an hour, can't you just kind of be my big buddy upstairs? You know? I just sign off on some, some things for me? Who remembers the original Star Trek from the 60s, the original? I looked at you. I, I, <laughs> it's like a magnet. They've made like, what, six or seven of these Star Trek series? I think they're making a new one now. Um, you know, remember Mr. Spock? The highly logical Mr. Spock once asked the stubborn Captain Kirk, has it ever occurred to you that there is a certain inefficiency in constantly questioning me on things you've already made up your mind about? To which Kirk replied, it gives me emotional security. And that's how we are sometimes. That's how we are sometimes before the Lord. We want God to give us emotional security about things we've already made up our minds on, don't we? Too often we want one foot in heaven and one foot in the world. But we must give up fighting for the world. Giving up the world within us, fight for the cause of Jesus Christ. Look how James explains what we do. James writes, you adulterous people, verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Ouch. Can't have both. He continues, verse 5, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously excuse me, over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We'll stop there. Uh, one commentary says this, God himself is in conflict with the world system. God is opposed to the fallen and idolatrous desires of the world. So when we make friendship with the world, when we say, I want this, and God, I want you to sign off on this, God looks at this and says, adulterer. 
adulterer. God created us for himself. He's rightfully jealous for our affections. Like any husband. David had no right to give his heart to the married Bathsheba. Did he? And we have no right to give ourselves to the world either. For God's, verse 5. James isn't saying here not to be uh, befriend or be afraid to witness to non-Christians. The only way we're going to be able to influence the world for Jesus as a Christian is by taking the gospel message of Jesus to the world. But James is saying to us today, first, first, surrender. Give up the fight against the one who makes you able to fight. Do away with that. That's not going to work. In turn, you may resist the worldly passions within you if you see the way this goes in the text from verse 1 to 2. Give up that fight so you can resist those passions. There's an order here. So I can come into work and I can still be upset about uh, a meeting or a couple of trying phone calls or maybe something I didn't quite get done or, or maybe a sermon that uh, took me a small eternity and half a bottle of Rolaids to finish. And I can have a generally miserable day. I'm good. I, I'm good at that. Who's here is good at ge- having a general, generally miserable day if you've decided? And then I can come home and I'm all ready to pick a fight with my wife before I even walk in the front door. I've already decided from the time I got up. Or I can praise God that he allowed me the means to earn a living and feed my family and put a roof over my head and let this attitude shape my afternoon. And this is called humility, remembering I'm a servant for the Lord. Where do I stand? I can get on the phone with that sibling or parent or child or grandchild and give the, well, I I don't have any grandkids yet, but I can't. But I can get on the phone with the sibling or parent or child, et cetera, and give them a real mouthful over some circumstance in which they didn't live up to my expectations. Or I can praise God, no matter what, no matter how trying this is, that this person is in my life, that he extended grace to me, I can extend my grace to them because God didn't have to share that person with me, did he? He didn't have to do that. Humility, remembering my place before the Lord, remembering where I stand. Now, my attitude adjustment here, my choosing grace, is not always going to promise a guaranteed thumbs up from others socially. It doesn't mean I'm going to always win. Uh, Having a Christ-like response doesn't mean I'm going to always get the last word, the best comeback, my money's worth, or what I think I deserve that day. Bummer. But it will be a witness that my heart's right before my Creator. Or at the very least, that God's working on me. What's, What's more important? Continue with me in verse 7. James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, he says this, the text concludes, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We come from a world that says, What's the uh, cliche? Always look out for number one. 
But Christians know that only God is to have the glory in our relationships, don't we? And that shows in every single uh, relationship we have all day long. Just imagine if everyone around us could see us showing not our egos, not betraying our desires, not showing that war within us, but Jesus, but Jesus in their relationships constantly and consistently because it doesn't come naturally to us. So just imagine if we show that. Do you think it could make a difference in this world? James says in verse 9, Christians must prepare ourselves because it's not natural, because we're broken and sinners and we have hurts and hang-ups. So we must carry ourselves like Christ when the fight isn't on, right? When we're not being confronted, when we aren't feeling bombarded by brokenness. Verse 7, we must submit to God faithfully when uh, it's peacetime, when things are going well, so that we'll be prepared when it comes time to show which side we're on, right? That's when we're going to need it. That's when that uh, deep of abiding faith that's a part of us, we're going to really need to depend on. Submit to God faithfully. I don't know from up here uh, specifically what fight you're facing today individually. I know we all came in here with something, somewhere. Maybe we're struggling with some physical issues. Or maybe there's a relationship that's, that's falling out around you, involving you. Maybe there's a, a loved one. You're, you're mourning the loss this morning. Maybe there's uh, some sin that's just been uncovered in your family. You're praying for conviction among your family members like you've had, been, uh, like you've had conviction Maybe you're humbling yourself before the Lord as you proverbially crying out to your father in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible. I'm so thankful for the cross, but the moment leading up to the cross, wow. Luke twenty two forty two. Jesus calls to heaven in anguish. He knows what's coming, and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Because I think of this time in Scripture, I think of this part in the narrative, that Jesus could have certainly gone his own way in the garden. He was God. As we're tempted to do when we're conflicted, he could have, and he would have been justified. He deserved to have his own way, not to be put to death on the cross. Jesus is God in the flesh. But in the midst of the biggest battle ever fought for humankind, the son mourned, he wept, he humbled himself all the way to the cross so that you and I might have eternal peace. So I think I can pick up the phone and make a phone call. It might be a little less painful to swallow my pride and humble myself, right? How can Christ's followers treat one another except by also saying, not my will, but yours be done to God, no matter the pain that might follow, no matter the sacrifice required? What besides God's grace promises peace in the long run? Of course, we know 
this this practice of surrender isn't going to instantly mend every strained or or broken relationship or hurt that we have in this life. It'd be nice if that's the way it worked, but we know it doesn't. There are some people in this world that we know that are just honestly difficult to get along with, aren't there? Uh, here's a thought for God's people. Don't be those people. I saw a Facebook meme recently that said, be the kind of person you'd like to meet. There's a lot of times I sure wish I'd uh, be a whole lot happier if I wasn't around, you know. I mean, um, we're not always going to respond like God's kid. We're not always going to respond like there's been infinite grace offered to us. But just a little humility is going to go a long way before worldly pride. Bible tells us this. Proverbs 15.1 says in the NIV, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And if anybody knew about conflict, it was Solomon, the writer of Proverbs. Uh, they say Solomon was the smartest man who ever lived, and then he went and married a thousand women. Now, how smart is that? Do you think he knew about conflict? Wives 301 through 306. What did you want today from the store? <laughs> Whew. But no matter our circumstances, can we learn to see God's side of them? There was a time in my life when I was upset with God because of my circumstances. I've shared this with you before because of some deaths of some people close to me. So I've lived a little bit longer now. I still have a long way to go, I'm sure, in, some, in reconciling some of those things. But I'd like to think I'm learning to depend on his direction a little bit better. Learning to accept the fact that he is in control. Learning to depend on his direction and his will for my life, despite the turns it's taken so far, even or especially the ones that really hurt. I realize I'm still a, a fairly young preacher, as preachers go, but here's just a few statistics. I've been uh, married, and you can do this at home. This is sometimes kind of fun. Sometimes it helps you when you forget numbers, as I'm already starting to do. I've been married for 18 years. I, I did the work already, so we're going to say 18. Carry the one, you know. I've had children for 13, been in the workplace for 23 years, and as far as I can remember, I've had family members. Shocking, isn't it? At the moment, I have a family of five, not counting the small animal refuge downstairs. <laughs> Call before you come over. Just, just throwing that out there. But I've seen some friction. <laughs> Does anybody want a dog this morning? Now I've got conflict. See how easy that is? But I know, I know, I'm convinced of this. God wasn't standing on my side during each and every one of my battles. I'm learning, though I'm, I'm pig-headed, and I'm stubborn, and I'm foolish, that I, moving forward, don't want to be anywhere but his side moving forward. That's where I'm at now. I don't want to be anywhere but God's side. He knows best. He really does. I promise. Sometimes there's a godly reason for conflict. We need to understand that and be aware of that. We could open our Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 10 to 25, concerning a group of warriors, God's warriors. They knew how to fight, but they also, know, they also knew for whom they were fighting. 
God used this restless spirit of David, this restless spirit, and the entire Israelite army here to fight for his own. Verse 10 says, this was a battle that belonged to God, according to the word of the Lord. They knew where they stood. See the difference? When it comes to choosing sides, the why makes all the difference. I'd like to close with this. One preacher speaks of uh, James J. Braddock, a boxer whose story was presented in the movie Cinderella Man, if you're familiar with that. Mr. Braddock was an early 20th century boxer who lost his passion and purpose, decided to quit uh, his sport. But by the Great Depression, when his family were deep in poverty, Braddock returned to the ring. He had a startling comeback. He, he regained his passion and his focus. He even upsetted uh, young, younger boxers by the score. At one point in the film, a stunned reporter asked Braddock, what are you fighting for? He replied, milk. I'm fighting for milk for my children. Why do you fight? What's your battle all about? Is it, is it for yourself? Or do you fight for somebody else? On whose side are we really? I challenge the church not to fight for the world within you, but for Christ alone, for he alone will win in the end. Shall we pray? God, I come before you just in awe of who you are, in awe of your grace and your mercy and your love for me and for this congregation. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, as we've read through this text today, that we would be convicted of all those places in our lives. Lord, it's not the passion that, that gets us in trouble. It's not the emotion. It's not the humanity. It's not the things you've given us that are good, that a creation you looked at and you said, this is good. This came from you, and you are good. But Lord, it's our sin that's the problem. It's our hearts that yearn for anything except you, that get in the way, that complicate. Lord, in those situations in our lives in which we have conflict, and Lord, we really have conflict. Lord, help us to remember the example that you have set before us. Sometimes, Lord, it takes complete removal of who we are in that situation. Sometimes, Lord, we have to give up everything to extend grace. Lord, help us to be people that aren't about necessarily being right in our own minds, but standing on the side of, of what is right. Lord, we, we're just in awe of, of the, the, the ability that you've given us to, to decide to make decisions, to, to come together, one another, in community and in relationships. Lord, we see how you work in awesome ways through our, our families and in our church. 
help us, Lord, to, to remember that it's only going to work. It's all only going to all come together when we're doing things your way. Help us to fight for the cause of Christ. Help us to be people that will err on the side of grace when we're given a choice. We thank you, Lord, that in that moment, in that moment in the garden, could have been it for us. But you gave yourself up. You went to the cross. And it senses if affected the eternity for every one of us. Lord, I pray that as it is not your will that any of us should perish, but that we would all come to repentance. I pray, Lord, that you would work within our battles, within our conflicts, so that others would see you, so that others would see there is a peace that's been offered. There's a future and a hope and an eternity there that we'll never have by siding with this world. Help us to hang on to you until we see you again in this broken world. Be with us. Help us to always look for you. It is in the name of Jesus I pray these things. Amen. And as we go to our family members, as we go to our friends, as we go within our communities and our church. Our prayer be, yeah, that guy's a Christian, yeah. Uh, she follows that example that I see in Scripture. Has those clean hands, those clean hands of sacrifice, those, those scarred hands. May Jesus be seen in all that we do, amen. If you haven't yet made a decision for Jesus Christ, if you haven't yet gone down into the waters of baptism, come up a new creation, come up a child of God, come up forgiven of everything you've ever done that missed the mark of his holiness. We invite you to do that. Or if you have questions about baptism, or if you have questions about faith, or, or what any of this is all about, see me or see one of the elders. This is the most important thing we can do during our time here is get our hearts right with God and make sure we're on his side when he returns for us. Don't wait. We don't know when he'll be back, but we know he'll be back. Amen? If you have a public decision you'd like to make, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this invitation song, Give Us Clean Hands. God loves you. God bless you.